you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. In the 80s, I spent uh, a good portion of the 80s in Colorado, and um, I have a lot of vivid memories of when I was young and living in Colorado, and one thing you know about me, and this won't surprise you, is that I was an absolute pain in the rear end as a child, 100% pain, to where my parents got to the point of just like negotiating with me, trying to get me to behave. And one time they were like, okay, hey, look, if you behave this week, I mean, that's how desperate they were. They had no long-term goals, just like this week, Greg, then I'll take you skiing. We always went to Keystone and skied because we lived right near Denver. And so I thought, okay, I got this. I got this. And so every day, like it began, the first day he dropped me off at school, and I went in, and then immediately I, I had already ruined my entire ski trip immediately by disobeying the teacher, getting into a fight with a kid, whatever it is. And so every single day that week, I was constantly in trouble, and I thought for sure, I was like, I am not going to be able to go skiing. And then my dad, my dad ended up taking me skiing. He took me skiing anyways, even though I was an absolute terror all week long. And so when we went skiing, there's a, there's a very memorable point in this, in this story. And when you're at the resort, we were on the lodge on the mountain, and there's a photographer who went around and was taking Polaroid pictures, if any of you know what those are. And, and for us to have immediately printed in a keychain, and there's this picture of me resting in my dad's arms with a huge smile, an absolutely huge smile. And the reason that is important is because even though I was a complete mess, completely um, disobedient and not listening to my father, my father had it in mind anyways that he was not rejecting me all week as I was rejecting him. He was constantly working for me and he held me and he brought me into his arms. And essentially, what I felt in that moment was not a distancing, but the Father just loving me and embracing me because He loved me and embraced me. And it really had nothing to do with my behavior. And so this created one of the biggest memories in my my mind, and it was a critical thing for me to see the kindness of a Father. The Heavenly Father is loving, He is kind, He is merciful. Yes, we are rebels. We see that clearly. We're rebels. We're sinners. We make mistakes. And we lose sight of His mercies. And really, when we do that, we succumb to rage and anger and temper tantrums. And often it takes us kicking and screaming, really coming to the end of ourselves for us to finally see that the Father is good and kind and is for us and not against us. We have, to be, we have to remind ourselves, because often we are, we are quick to go to the slumps of our humanity, the slumps of our sinful nature, the slumps of who we are because of brokenness. And we often think that we're completely separated from God in that way. But by faith in Jesus Christ, we, we have to remember that we are close to Him, and we have to also remember that God is not so separate that He does not understand. Our God is a suffering God. Our God is an enduring God. 
Our God is a faithful God. He gets it. He knows it. He understands it. And so the sufferings of our life, of our time, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, in the first five verses, that suffering ultimately produces hope. It's working. It's doing something. It's producing something. And so when we come here to Lamentations 3, what we're seeing is really God is inviting us into His rest. He's inviting His people into His rest, into His peace, into His heart. To accept His invitation is to experience really a reviving of the soul. A reviving of the soul. The Father is perfectly faithful even when we're faithless. Even when I was sinning against my dad all week, he was still faithful to me and still invited me into his arms. And so today is an invitation to the Father's faithfulness. And so we'll see faithfulness really that revives the soul. Faithfulness that revives the soul. The first 20 verses of chapter 3 really is a is our faithlessness. A faithlessness that really flatlines the soul. If you think of those machines, and I'm no doctor here, but that monitors the heart, the beep, beep, kind of thing. What do you call that, Jack? An EKG? Okay. The EKG that monitors the heart. Here, we have a flat line. The first 20 verses are really a flat-lined soul, a flat-lined heart. And so we see in these first 20 verses a human reaction, a visceral reaction to God's discipline. Our faithlessness, Judah's faithlessness, led them to a point of accusation. We're accusing God, you're doing this. This is, this is what you're doing to us. And there's no real like self-inflection, like looking at the problem of our own souls. We become visceral in our reaction. We begin to suffer with limited perspective. And ultimately, as you get to verse 18, when you operate in that human condition, in that human power, in that human endurance, it eventually runs out. The fuel tank empties. And your endurance runs out and your hope begins to dwindle and fade. And this road ultimately leads to death. Really a flatlining of the soul. It is important for us to be honest about the discipline of the Lord in our lives. I think what we have in the first 20 verses is honesty of the soul. Here's what it feels like. Here's what we're experiencing. Here's the pain of the suffering of our time. The discipline of the Lord upon us is heavy and we can identify it. Can you identify really the disciplines and the sufferings that are upon you? And what does it do? Does it take you to a place of rage? To a place of anger? Do you find yourself kicking and screaming? And your faithlessness, our faithlessness, where does it ultimately lead? It leads to a lack of endurance, right? So maybe you're in here right now and you're going, my endurance is waned. Like, I have no fuel in the tank. I am literally running on fumes. Or maybe you're not even running on fumes anymore. The car is in neutral and you're just pushing the car. And you're realizing, I can't do this anymore. And I think that's an honest place that we all need to see and come to. 
Because the best thing for Judah was for them to see that they were dead essentially without God. They had no power. They had no endurance. And so you cannot go on fighting anymore. You've reached the end of yourself, if you will. We've, we've tapped out. We all know we're a mess up. Okay, we've come to that realization. But here's where we need to begin to shift perspective. The Father, even in all of this, has not left you. He has not left Judah. So then, come to the Father whose faithfulness then revives the flatlined soul. And that's what we see in verses 21 and 24. God does something miraculous. You see a change. I, I love this, talking with someone in our community group. You really see two different people. You see a dead person in the first 20 verses, and then you see an alive person in these next verses. And it's true. And what happens in 21? But this I call to mind. God gives the sufferer memory to help recall him above all the pain. Or the Spirit of God prompting a memory within Jeremiah, within Judah, to recall these things to mind. Memory can do a couple things for us. We don't often think about the reality that we operate a lot on the memories in our mind. Our lives are often dictated in a lot of ways about what comes to mind and how we remember things or experience things or interpret things in our mind. Memory, if it's locked into the failures, if it's locked into the constant mess-ups, will constantly lead to a flatlining soul. But a memory that locks onto what God has said and what God has done and God promises is reviving to the soul and gives hope. You see the difference? And so here's the hope that the author has in remembering or recalling to mind the things of God. Because remember, he's tanked out. I have no more endurance, no more hope, but I recall this to mind. And here's the hope of remembering God's Word. That God's love is never ending. This is important for Judah. This is important for Jeremiah. For them to see God's love is who God is. It's His nature. It's His character. It's as eternal as God is because God is love. It is never ending. It's not like, oh, you sinned up to a point, so now I'm done with you. I don't love you anymore. But beyond that, His love is steadfast. God's not wishy-washy. He's not excited about His love one day and then just kind of bummed about it the next day. He is constant. He is steadfast. We're the ones constantly moving up and down on the scales, but His love is forever the same. His mercies never end. Love this. Mercies is not receiving what we deserve. Judah deserves the eternal wrath of God for their sin against God. For the kings coming against God, disobeying Him, defiling the temple, defiling the priesthood, defiling the Ark of the Covenant, all of that, they deserve ultimate death forever. But God is merciful, not giving them actually what it is they deserve. And then His mercies, they are new. They're always fresh. They never grow stale. They never grow old. God's not going, man, I'm tired of this. 
They're always new. And this gives room for imagination. And here's what I mean. You remember what God has said, but you can now imagine that tomorrow the mercies of God are going to be new. Here Judah and Jeremiah are sitting in the midst of chaos, the midst of suffering, and they have the ability to understand and know that tomorrow God will be just as merciful and it will be new. And how can they do that? Because God is faithful. Meaning He's always trustworthy. His Word is always true and it will always come about. And so they can endure today knowing that even tomorrow His mercies will come. And it leads the soul when our mind is recalling the Lord for us to see that He is our portion. Meaning, He's all that we need. And so then the hope You see, the hope prior in the verse 20 verses was set in self, was set on personal experience, what the energy and the the strength that I have to get through this, and it ultimately led to a waning of endurance and a hope that was fading and fizzling out, but now when perspective is shifted to, directed to the Lord, now there's a reviving, now Hope is rising, and now our endurance is rising. So it took the suffering of Judah to even see that there was hope. Because without suffering, really, it was just self-preservation and self-dependency. I got this. I can figure this out. They realized they couldn't do it. They had nowhere else to go. They had no power. And so God uses suffering as an invitation back to Himself. Come back into the garden in the cool of the day. Come, be with me. It's not necessarily a pretty invitation, right? It's suffering, bloody, messy, so forth, but it's it's an invitation back into Himself because instead of completely destroying you forever, He's giving you His mercies. Remember, God doesn't discipline lost people. God disciplines His people, the church. People who die without Christ have to endure His wrath forever. We do not have to do that. And often we think that only lost people need to accept the invitation. But really, we are the ones who need to accept and enter into that invitation every single day. We were the lost who are now found. But we have not reached the end It's not all realized yet. We're in the already but not yet. Right? The world is still broken. We need to continually go to the Father. And so your struggles in life right now, whatever they are, job, marriage, relationships, schooling, careers, how might they be a sign for you to enter into His rest? Instead of you looking at the struggles of how do I need to white knuckle this and buckle down and plow through this, instead, what if we shift it and go, how might I need to just enter into the rest? What is the Father trying to communicate to me? What is He calling me to? When things are tough, when hard things happen in life, there's usually a floodgate of memories that is opened. There's certain pains and memories within the mind, within the soul that seem to surface up. 
I have like two or three things that constantly come to mind every time I am stressed, every time I'm frustrated or angry. These certain things come to mind all the time. And the same is generally for all of us. What are those things that you constantly recall? You're constantly recalling your failures, your mess-ups, the experiences in your life, the sin you've committed, the sin that's been committed against you. These things are constantly coming against you. And what do you think happens when we are only giving into the memories of our brokenness and our sinfulness and our failures all the time? What do you think happens there? I'll tell you how it plays out. It results in guilt. It results in shame. I mean, that's the only thing you're thinking about. It's the only thing you have that comes to mind. Imagine if chapter 3 ended at verse 20. There's no hope there. His endurance is fading and hope runs out. You become anger. Angry, excuse me. You become bitter. The stress rises within your soul, within your body. You can feel it within your muscles. You become weary. You begin to have sleepless nights. You become, begin to become fatigued. If you don't think what happens in your mind and your soul doesn't affect your body, you are fooling yourself. The Lord didn't just make us spiritual beings. He made us physical and spiritual beings. That is what encompasses the whole soul of a person. So maybe, maybe you can just think about how you're doing physically and just wonder, where's that coming from? Is the brokenness in my life that I'm holding on to, that I'm not leaning into the Lord, is it just breaking me down? Your endurance will fade if those are the only things that you call to mind. Because you are only doing this. You're clinging to your own failures and your own self. That is a hopeless, that's a hopelessness. That is not the gospel. And it has the incapability of envisioning a future glory. Had Jeremiah stopped in 20, he would have envisioned no future glory, but he goes on envisioning a future glory. And so, the Lord has been gracious to us to give us memory, to be able to recall Him, to remember Him. And the good news is that the Spirit aids us in that. The Spirit aids us in recalling these things, and I believe that the Spirit was at work between verses 20 and 21, calling these things to mind, because the things of God don't just happen and are not mustered up in our own strength and our own power, but God is at work in us. So we must recall then the love of God. He first loved us. He didn't love us in response to us. He loved us before He even made us. And He continues to love us. And He will never stop loving us. It's a simple yet profound truth. We need to recall God's mercies. How He continues to not give us what it is we actually deserve. But He gives us grace and hope and life. And He continues to be merciful to us. And just as the mercies were new every day, For Judah, so they are for us. And he gives us the ability to have imagination. Think about how merciful God is going to be even tomorrow, should tomorrow come. And we know this 
Because we know that God is faithful. He's proved it over and over throughout history, throughout the ages. So then we know He is true. He's true to His Word. He will be faithful to the end. And listen, we have the power to receive these things. And we receive them by faith in Jesus. And, and, and it's already there. We have to understand that the infinite love of God is attached to us. It's not like Judah does X, Y, and Z, and then God then attaches his love to them. Or if Judah fulfills this, then God will be merciful. It's not do this, then that will happen. It is God has done this. And we just need to receive it. We just need to enter into it. We need to lean into the love of God that is already there and has not left us nor forsaken us. And so then how does this practically look? 28 through 30 gives the practicality of how this looks. But before that, sorry, I almost skipped over this piece. He talks about the young man here. The young person. It says, it is good for a man, in verse 27, that he bear the yoke in his youth. It is benefit for us to learn these things when we're younger, is what he's saying. A young soul is going to try to muscle through this, but a mature soul recalls their lack of strength and is quicker to enter into the quiet rest of the Lord. So it's better to learn this. And how do we learn this? How do we practically learn this? He tells us in 28 through 30. So this is instruction for Judah amidst the chaos, amidst captivity, amidst being enslaved. Harsh enslavement. The instruction is this. Sit alone in silence as it is laid on him to do so. Sit alone. Why? Silence is removing yourself from the noise of life. It is positioning yourself. It forces Judah to recall things to memory. And either they will recall things to memory that are afflicting or memories that will revive. The second thing he says is prayer. Fall on your face in prayer. Mouth to the dust prayer. This is a physical posture of complete surrender. Saying, I have no more in my tank, no more endurance, no more, no more hope in myself, only my hope in You, God. There is no other. And that produces then endurance. And that is the endurance you see of turning the other cheek here, of being filled with insults. Persecution comes. So the, the enemy, the Babylonians, are going to continue to come after Judah for following the Lord. And as they come after them, they're not to run, they're not to flee from them, but the Lord is calling them to enter into His rest. The right hand of power that was for them is still for them. Just enter into it. And so you see a transition at this point. There was a, the first part of the chapter is accusations and frustrations but now it's entering into and highlighting the love and the mercies of God. And it is no longer going to be that Judah is against God, but Babylon is against God. And God is for His people. 
And so when a soul leans into the Lord, is quieted, finds rest in Him, he can then be filled with insults and not flatline because his heart, his soul is overflowing with the hope of God and God's love cannot be outdone. And so you can behold the instant transformation in this chapter. You can see just by simply entering into the faithfulness of God, the soul of Judah is changing. It is being made new. And really the Bible is a story of constant recreation. It's a story of constant recreation. Over and over again, God is making a people for Himself. They fail, they sin, they disperse out to a remnant, and God restores them. He makes His people new. He brings them back together with the idea of, it's essentially the Old Testament is foreshadowing this new creation we will be in Christ Jesus. That is why we sing, He is the new and truer Adam. Right? We are new creations in Christ Jesus. So, with that said, in what ways might the Lord be making you new through sufferings in your life? In what ways might the Lord be making you new through sufferings in life? Are you able to see the goodness of God in your life? If not, then you need to logically ask yourself, am I quiet, seeking and waiting on the Lord? And ultimately, that is the first step. To quiet your busy soul and just seek the Lord. So then, what do you need to adjust in your life to simply quiet the soul? What do you need to do? This is like the the creaking noise of the door opening from a kid coming out of the room after throwing a fit. It's like realizing, okay, calming down, coming out of that. Let us recall, God's discipline in life is not designed for us to fix the problem. God's discipline in life is designed for us to recognize that we cannot fix anything on our own. We cannot do it. We must turn to Him. He must empower us. The young sufferer says, I got to do better. I got to prove I can fix this. The mature sufferer says, I need to rest in him so I can endure with hope. So, who are you? Are you the young sufferer or are you the mature sufferer? Are you finding yourself pressing harder, buckling down even more? Or are you finding yourself being able to just restfully endure? And once we come out and resolve in our souls to be quiet, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it at that point? I say, let us be silent. We are so filled with noise and distraction around every single corner. The noise is constantly buzzing in our pockets every single day. But we need to be quiet. We need to recall God's Word. When horrible memories come up, that lie of the enemy, hey, remember how you failed here? Remember where you mess up here? Remember how nobody likes you anymore here? Let us then counter those memories with the Word of God and His promises. This is that transformation. This is that sanctification. 
that rewiring of the brain where we take the lies and we replace them with truth. Let us be in prayer. My personality is the fixer type. If there's an issue or a problem, I go and I fix it. I take care of business. I don't wait around. I don't ask a whole lot of questions. I don't really apologize for it. I just go and I make it happen. But when it comes to our souls, we can't do that. We must go to the Lord. We must lay ourselves down to the dust and be with our God and ultimately crawl in His lap. Surrender ourselves completely to Him. We need to begin to see how life goes from surviving to enduring. Because you are truly resting in His hope. This is going to require some planning. It's going to require some discipline in life. What do you need to adjust in life? What do you need to put on the back burner in life that constantly is distracting you from just engaging the Lord? How do you ever plan to endure the Babylonians of life if you never pull yourself away and rest? If you're constantly always in the noise and never willing to be silent? I would say a quieted soul, quieted soul disciples are healthy disciples. Quieted soul disciples are healthy disciples. If you want to have any sort of impact in the world around you, to lost people, to your coworkers, in your marriage, to the kids that you're raising, in your, in your classrooms, in whatever environment or relationships you have, if you ever want to have impact, you need to check yourself and really ask, am I even healthy? I mean, the world is loud and is laboring and is constantly trying to do things in their own power. And if they're looking at you loud and laboring and trying to do things in your own power, then what is exactly you're calling them to? Their endurance is running out, but so is yours. We need to lead the way in showing that we have a healthy endurance and a reviving of the soul even amidst chaos. doesn't mean we're removing ourselves from the pain. We'll see, chapter 4 and 5 re-enters into the pain. But we live it out differently. How are we going to win the world over if we're just constantly throwing temper tantrums? (laughs) When we're quieted and enter into His arms, it is then the Father who shows us His real heart. So we see a revived soul is able to see the faithful heart of God. Verses 31 through 33. The Lord does not cast off. Judah is not going to be cast off from the Father. No matter how horrible Judah was, the Father's not saying, I'm done with you, I'm going to move on. It's temporary. And so this is discipline. This is not the eternal wrath of God, but this is discipline. And so the, the grief is found in the sinner here. So the sinner is grieving, but that grief is designed to lead the sinner back to God, not ultimately cast him away. That is the grief that we're talking about here. And as the Lord draws the sinners to Himself, He then does what? He expresses compassion. 
what we see in these verses. Compassion. And compassion is a tender, caring love. It's like the love of a mother. But here we have the love of the Father. Tender, caring love. Nurturing love. And the compassion of the Lord comes from, a who, from who God is. And who is He? He is love. His love is abundant, it says. His love is steadfast. His love causes the grieving sinner to lean in and receive tender love and care. And as the sinner receives God's love, it's in those moments that the sinner begins to really see the heart of God, where the sinner kind of crawls up into the lap of the Father, and the Father draws him in closely, and it's almost like putting our ears to the chest of God and beginning to hear His heart. The heart is at the core of who someone is. God's love, His compassion, all flow out from His heart. It's not manufactured. It's not fake. It's not putting on a show. It is who He is. It is His character. It is His nature. So God's heart, therefore, does not desire affliction, it says. He's not desire. His heart is not for His children to be afflicted. He does not want Judah to be afflicted. God wants Judah in His rest. He didn't design His people to be punished. He didn't design His people to be out of relationship with Him. He didn't design His people to be away from Him. He designed His people to be with Him. And it is His people who constantly are sinning against Him and running away from Him. And so He uses their rebellion. He uses their sinfulness. He uses their brokenness to have them come to the end of themselves so that they might come back to Him. And His heart, it does not grieve the children of men. It does not grieve His own people. You see in the first 20 verses... Judah is grieving God, but here God is not grieving Judah. God didn't make His people to just be frustrated with them. That's not the desire, the will of His heart. He uses grief to bring His people back to Himself, but God Himself does not grieve His people. And because Judah can now see the heart of God, they can actually then grieve with hope. They have hope. Knowing that the very heart of God is not grieved by them. And so this is why by the time you get to verses 55-58 through of this chapter, Judah could come near to the Lord without fear. God is not just waiting to devour you and to consume you. He's inviting you in. And once you see His heart and know His heart and His love, You can approach Him without fear. And so in the midst of captivity, Judah is able to say that they are redeemed. Verse 58, you have redeemed my life. They're not free yet. They're enslaved to the Babylonians. They don't have the temple anymore. They don't have Jerusalem anymore. They don't have a king anymore. They don't have priests. They don't have anything anymore. And yet, they can say in this already but not yet language, we are redeemed. They are recalling what God has done from the beginning, how God delivers His people, and they are envisioning 
what God is going to do, and they know what God is going to do because God is faithful. God is going to deliver them from the Babylonians. He's going to redeem them. They know it. Church, God is not grieved by you. He's not just up there in heaven going, man, you really disappointed me again. Shame on you. You know you're a failure. You know that, right? We often remember all our failures, all of our shame. At the heart of who we are, and when we do, we assume God shares in that grief. We know, okay, this is all I can remember and all I can think about, and therefore, God must be thinking the same things. But we have to remember the truth that God is after our hearts. He's not influenced or His decisions aren't, aren't determined then on our own hearts and what we think about ourselves. He loves us even while we are sinners. And so we're to enter into His abundant love, receive His compassion, and there we'll see the Lord's heart. We'll see the Lord's heart for us by faith in Jesus. God's heart gives us hope. He gives us hope. And why? Because our hope is completely wrapped up in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate salvation. The ultimate deliverance realized ultimately for the people of Judah. Babylon, being delivered from Babylon, is just a foreshadowing of the real deliverance, of the real redemption, of the real salvation that would be realized in Jesus Christ. And we have that salvation realized in Jesus Christ through the sufferings of the cross. And even more than that, we have the continued heart of God that was present with Judah embodied in Jesus and with us forever. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, shows us the heart of Jesus. It shows us the direct heart of Jesus. Jesus invites sinners unto Himself. He invites sinners who are burdened and heavy laden to take up His yoke, which is light. And then He invites sinners to rest because it says He is Gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus says this about Himself. This is the core of who our Savior is. He is gentle and lowly in heart. Doesn't say He's angry and bitter and full of vengeance in heart. Doesn't say, say He despises you in heart. It says He's gentle and lowly in heart. God has shown His steadfast love and compassion for us by sending Jesus. By sending Him to die for our sins. He died on the cross ultimately to set us free. He does not desire to afflict us in any way. He does not grieve us. He's not ashamed to call us brother or sister. But often we feel like when we mess up or when we're in a hard time that God is just angry with us or bitter with us or can't stand us, or can't stand even be associated with us, but that is not the truth. A gentle and lowly heart does not despise the people he loves. We place a ton of pressure on ourselves when we find ourselves in a world of mess. We're disciplined in life to not be punished for our sins, 
but to be awakened and revived to come unto Him. So the discipline we have to endure is not to be punished for our sins, but to awaken us, to revive our souls, to come back into and enter into the invitation of the Gospel of Jesus. To be reminded of the Father's love for us through His Son, Jesus. Not to be saved again, but to be reminded of the salvation that we have. That is ours. Even yet while we sin. The Lord is not asking any of us to be Superman to fix or save the world. That's my temptation. To be Superman. To be a superhero. Hey, watch how I can handle this. Watch how I can take on the, the, all the problems of the world and watch how I can be on the front lines of this. That is my temptation. But rather, He's inviting us to Himself saying, I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you. And so we need to sharpen not only our, our memory, but even our imagination. I'm not talking like Disney imagination, the magical world of things, but I'm talking about imagination that is informed by our understanding of the Gospel, by who God is. Imagination helps us see that we have limitations, but God says, this is, this is where we, we have a lot of, um, we're short-sighted. When we think about our problems, we often don't think about the future reality and the future hope that we have in Jesus. That is the imagination I'm talking about. That the mercies are new every morning. That hope is coming. That Jesus is going to return. We have to continue to imagine and and remember and imagine and believe that Jesus continues to save us and He will return. That gives us hope. And that removes fear. Because remember what John says, it is perfect love that casts out fear. The perfect love of God to Judah casts out the fear of Judah. He's going to redeem them. How much more for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we're fearful of the things around us. Fearful of brokenness. Fearful of the impact of our sin. But the Father says, perfect love casts out fear. Enter into the invitation, into the arms of God. It's time to truly quiet our souls. To rest in Him. When we do, we will begin to see and experience our souls to revive within us. We become rested healthy, God-fearing people who endure with steadfast hope. The mercy extended to me by my father when I was five years old really just kind of echoed throughout my life, especially in my teens. There were some things I did in my teens that my father should have killed me for. But he was constantly gracious. And now that sort of kindness and grace has been manifested in my life as a father. And so I recall at times the, my father's mercy and, and really his steadfast love for me and that desire to be really experienced by my own children. Let me just go ahead and give the caveat. I am not a perfect father. <laughs> I feel like more of the experiences are not good, but 
That's just how I feel inside my soul. But that's not how I want to be. I hug. I show grace. I extend mercy. I kiss them on the cheeks. I play with them. I love to create memories of mercy and love that would ultimately point them to Christ. And that is definitely a step I want to continue to go. Continue to have. I imagine a future where they will recall the days that they had with Daddy and Mommy and think that I was not only loving, but I was influenced in my heart by a Heavenly Father. And my hope is that it'll give them great joy and hope moving forward. So let's not leave today forgetting the heart of the Father in heaven. I mean, you think about throwing a temper tantrum, right? We, we often think that God distanced Himself from us, but really God is with us. Let me, let me paint it this way. When a child is being disciplined, so like think of disciplining one of my children, I'm not going to point any of you out. I will be frustrated with them, may discipline them. They may go up to the room kicking and screaming and punching and yelling, be like, you're the worst father in the, in the world. I hate you, I want another family. And I'm tempted to be like, I don't care. And so they go. And I haven't left the house. I didn't put the house on the market with them in it, saying, I'll make a deal with you. We'll close at this price and you get the kid. Like, I'm I'm not doing that. I'm not abandoning them. I'm still in the house. They just left the room and went into another room. And when they calm down, when they remember that their father is not constantly angry with them. They remember that, okay, maybe I don't have the worst dad in the world. <laughs> they come down, and I'm waiting in the living room, and I'm open to them just coming to me, just being with me, just embracing them, holding them in my arms. This is the sort of imagery I want us to have that the Father hasn't left us. We just kind of ran off to another room throwing a fit, but we need to come down and just come to Him. We need to become rested, healthy, God-fearing people who endure with steadfast hope, not just like kicking and screaming all the time that's going to wear us down. Our endurance will fade quickly. So let's not leave forgetting the heart of the Father in heaven. His mercies are new. His love never ceases. He is forever compassionate towards you. And so the noise of the world and your failures will weigh down your soul, but while it is still called today, recall the Father's kindness and love towards you through Christ Jesus. Come out of your room. Boldly approach His throne of grace by accepting His invitation to climb into His lap and receive from Him His very heart. So come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and Jesus will give you rest.